There's one room on this earth that I've walked into that left me more humbled than any other, more proud and inspired, more happy and afraid and joyful. In one oval-shaped room, the full weight of our nation and the American experience takes hold of you and doesn't let go. No, not that oval room. I'm Jason Epperson, and this is the See America Podcast. From coast to coast, we see America one mile at a time, discovering stops along the way that are eclectic, historic, ridiculous, breathtaking, inspiring, and humbling. This week, the founding documents of America and the Rotunda for the Charters of Freedom at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. This great destination is brought to you by Road Trippers, America's number one road trip planning app. Road Trippers helps people discover the world around them in an entirely new way by streamlining discovery, planning, booking, and navigation. Plan your unique journey at roadtrippers.com, then use the app as your ultimate travel guide and navigator. Adventure doesn't come from the fastest route. Start exploring at roadtrippers.com. Designed by architect John Russell Pope as a shrine to American democracy, the Rotunda for the Charters of Freedom is the permanent home of the original Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, and Bill of Rights. Located on the upper level of the National Archives Museum, the priceless documents stand at the center of a semicircle display, showing the important records of the growth of the United States. They stand elevated under armed guard in their bronze and marble shrines. The Bill of Rights and two of the five leaves of the Constitution are displayed flat. Above them, the Declaration of Independence is held impressively in an upright case constructed of ballistically tested glass and plastic laminate. Ultraviolet light filters in the laminate give the inner layer a slightly greenish hue. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence states the principles on which our government and our identity as Americans are based. Unlike the other founding documents in the Rotunda, the Declaration is not legally binding, but it's powerful. Abraham Lincoln called it a rebuke and a stumbling block to tyranny and oppression. On July 19, 1776, once all 13 colonies had signified their approval of the Declaration, Congress ordered that it be fairly engrossed on parchment, engrossing meaning written fine, large, and clear. Timothy Matlack, an assistant to the Secretary of Congress, was most likely the penman, on August 2nd, the Journal of the Continental Congress records that the Declaration of Independence being engrossed and compared at the table was signed. John Hancock, President of the Congress, signed first. The delegates then signed by state from north to south. Some signed after August 2nd. A few refused. George Washington was away with his troops. Ultimately, 56 delegates signed the Declaration. Next in the center of the room is the Constitution. The Constitution acted like a colossal merger 
uniting a group of states within different interests and laws and cultures. Under America's first national government, the Articles of Confederation, the states acted together only for specific purposes. The Constitution united its citizens as members of a whole, vesting the power of the Union in the people. Without it, the American experiment might have ended as quickly as it had begun. The state delegates approved the draft of the Constitution on September 15, 1787. The signing was set for the very next Monday. Jacob Shallis, the assistant clerk for the Pennsylvania General Assembly, agreed to engross the document. Over the course of about 40 hours, he created an accurate transcription of the draft. He was paid $30 for his efforts. On September 17th, the document was ready for signing. 39 of the 42 men present signed the Constitution. George Washington was first, followed by each state delegation descending from north to south. George Mason, Elbridge Gerry, and Edmund Rudolph refused to sign because the Constitution lacked a Bill of Rights. And Thomas Jefferson and John Adams didn't sign because they were on diplomatic missions in Europe. Finally, you get to visit what to me is the most sacred of the American documents, the Bill of Rights. The Constitution might never have been ratified if the framers hadn't promised to add a Bill of Rights. The first 10 amendments to the Constitution gave citizens more confidence in a new government and contained many of today's Americans' most valued freedoms. The document on permanent display in the rotunda is the enrolled original joint resolution passed by Congress on September 25, 1789, proposing 12, not 10 amendments to the Constitution. William Lambert and Benjamin Bankson, engrossing clerks for the House and Senate, made 14 handwritten copies of the proposed amendments, which were signed by Speaker of the House Frederick Muhlenberg, Vice President John Adams, Clerk of the House of Representatives John Beckley, and Secretary of State Samuel A. Otis. George Washington sent a letter enclosing one to each of the 11 existing states and to Rhode Island and North Carolina, which had not yet adopted the Constitution. In 1933, while the Depression gripped the nation, President Hoover laid the cornerstone for the National Archives building in D.C. He announced that the founding documents would eventually be kept in the impressive structure that was to occupy the site. It was for their keeping and display that the exhibition hall in the National Archives had been designed. Two large murals were painted for its walls. In one, Thomas Jefferson is depicted presenting the declaration to John Hancock, while members of the revolutionary body look on. In the second, James Madison is portrayed submitting the Constitution to George Washington. The final transfer of the documents did not, however, take place until almost 20 years later. In 1834, President Roosevelt appointed the first archivist of the United States, Robert Connor. The president told Connor that valuable historic documents such as the Declaration and the Constitution would reside in the National Archives building. The Library of Congress, especially librarian Herbert Putnam, objected. In a meeting with the president two months after his appointment, Connor explained to Roosevelt how the documents came to be in the library. Putnam felt that an act of Congress was necessary in order to move them to the archives. Roosevelt decided it would be better to leave the matter alone until Putnam retired. When he eventually did, Archibald McLeish, 
was nominated to the post. McLeish agreed with Roosevelt and Connor that the important documents belonged in the National Archives. But due to World War II, during much of which the declaration was stored at Fort Knox, he was unable to enact the transfer. By 1944, when the Declaration and the Constitution returned to Washington, McLeish had been appointed Assistant Secretary of State. Connor had retired by now, too. And Solon J. Buck, the new archivist, felt that the documents were in good hands at the Library of Congress. His successor, Wayne Grover, disagreed. And finally, Luther Evans, the Librarian of Congress appointed by Truman in 1945, agreed that the documents should be transferred to the archives. At 11 a.m., December 13, 1952, Brigadier General Stoit O. Ross, Commanding General of the Air Force Headquarters Command, formally received the documents at the Library of Congress. Twelve members of the Armed Forces Special Police carried the six pieces of parchment in their helium-filled glass cases and closed in wooden crates down the library steps through a line of 88 servicewomen. An armored Marine Corps personnel carrier awaited the documents. Once they had been placed on mattresses inside the vehicle, they were accompanied by a color guard, ceremonial troops, the Army Band, the Air Force Drum and Bugle Corps, two light tanks, four servicemen carrying submachine guns, and a motorcycle escort in a parade down Pennsylvania and Constitution Avenues to the Archive Building. Both sides of the parade route were lined by Army, Navy, Coast Guard, Marine, and Air Force personnel. At 11.35 a.m., General Ross and the 12 special policemen arrived at the National Archives building. They carried the crates up the steps and formally delivered them into the custody of the archives. Already at the National Archives was the Bill of Rights, protectively sealed according to the techniques used a year earlier for the Declaration in the Constitution. The formal enshrining ceremony on December 15, 1952 was just as impressive. Chief Justice of the United States Fred M. Vinson presided over the ceremony, which was attended by officials of more than 100 national civic, patriotic, religious, veterans, educational, business, and labor groups. President Harry S. Truman, the featured speaker, said, The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights are now assembled in one place for display and safekeeping. We are engaged here today in a symbolic act. We are enshrining these documents for future ages. This magnificent hall has been constructed to exhibit them, and the vault beneath that we have built to protect them is as safe from destruction as anything that the wit of modern man can devise. All this is an honorable effort based upon reverence for the great past, and our generation can take just pride in it. And our generation can take just pride in it. In 1987, the National Archives and Records Administration installed a $3 million camera and computerized system to monitor the condition of the three documents. The system was designed by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory to assess the state of preservation of the documents. It can detect any changes in readability due to ink flaking, offsetting of ink into glass, changes in document dimensions, and ink fading. The system's capable of recording in very fine detail one-inch square areas of documents and later retaking the pictures in exactly the same places and under the same conditions of lighting. Periodic measurements are compared to the baseline image to determine if changes or deterioration invisible to the human eye have taken place. At night, the documents are stored in an underground vault. In fact, if you've seen the movie National Treasure, they got a lot of stuff right. Some of that may be fantasy, and some of it may be never known to the public. 
But what is known is that eventually it became clear the documents were deteriorating even while hermetically sealed, especially the Declaration of Independence, which had for much of its life toured the world. With more, here's the last person to actually touch the Declaration of Independence, former supervisory conservator Mary Lynn Ritzenthaler. The Declaration of Independence was sealed in the early 1950s when it was still in the custody of the Library of Congress. It was sealed from that point um, until we opened the encasement for the Declaration in 2002. Over the course of its history, it was handled a great deal. Uh, from 1776, it traveled a great deal. It was on exhibit in many cases. It was stored at the Department of State and brought out for people to see and to handle. And it kind of showed the effects of all of that over the years. A very good colleague of mine, Kitty Nicholson, we were the conservation team that removed the declaration from its earlier encasement and did the examination and treatment. Well, I think we were a little nervous just given this, the status of the document, probably one of the most important things in American history. Um, there were seven charters documents that were encased and we left the declaration until the very end because we wanted to build our knowledge and experience. Parchment is very different from paper. Um, it's a very strong, smooth surface material. Um, it did not have an odor, um, but we had to handle it very carefully because of the long years of its history and all of the damage that it had suffered um, during the years that it was you know, traveled by, by ship and by horse and um, in snows and rain and rolled up and folded. So it was not the best um, piece of skin in terms of the condition given its age and the, the factors that had affected it over time. So we were very careful. When the encasements were sealed, uh, we feel with our, our help from colleagues at the National Institute for Standards and Technology that the encasements will stay sealed for close to 100 years. So it could be a good long time before the document is exposed to air again and there is some opportunity to handle it. Working on all of the Charters of Freedom documents, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Declaration of Independence were all exciting, amazing, and kind of awe-inspiring, but the Declaration uh, really trumps them all as one of the most significant uh, items in our history. Being the last person to actually handle the Declaration of Independence is rather awe-inspiring. It was an honor to be able to work on that document and certainly the highlight of my career. Visiting the National Archives is a DC must-do, and there's so much more than these three documents in the museum, but you have to be prepared. Reservations are not required for individuals or groups wishing to enter, but they're strongly suggested between March and Labor Day to avoid potentially long lines. It can take up to an hour or more to enter. And in order to expedite the security check, you might wanna leave large bags, metal jewelry, backpacks, and the like behind. Backpacks, luggage, and other personal items are permitted in the museum, but they have to remain with you at all times. There are no lockers or coat check available. There's also no parking available at the museum, but you can take advantage of a number of public parking garages within a few blocks. Use of the Metro system is highly recommended on any visit in DC. Traffic is a nightmare. This episode of See America was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, 
Special thanks to the National Archives for much of the text and the interview with Mary Lynn Ritzenthaler. If you like the show, we'd love a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'd also like to invite you to follow the See America podcast on Instagram and Facebook and join the See America Facebook group where we chat about some of America's greatest road trip destinations. If you're a national park lover, we hope you'll also check out the America's National Parks podcast or come listen to Abigail and me talk about our life on the road with our three boys on the RV Miles podcast. This great destination was brought to you by Road Trippers, America's number one road trip planning app. Plan your unique journey at roadtrippers.com, then use the app as your ultimate travel guide and navigator. Adventure doesn't come from the fastest route. Start exploring at roadtrippers.com. towering documents of human freedom is the Declaration of Independence of the United States. We hear it now as read by John F. Kennedy. The reading was done when Mr. Kennedy was serving as United States Senator from the state of Massachusetts. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new gods for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, 
and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having indirect object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance. Unless suspended in their operation, till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish their right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and formidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. He has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasions on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative power, incapable of annihilation, have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither and raising the conditions of new appropriations of land. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amounts and payment of their salaries he has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of offices to harass our people and eat out their substance. He has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has effected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation for quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond seas to be tried for pretended offenses. 
for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, establishing therein an arbitrary government, and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule into these colonies, for taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our government, for suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burned our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the work of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens, taken captive on the high seas, to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an indistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are, and of a right ought to be, free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, 
They have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. <laughs>